there's all types of vegetarian and vegan diets. I mean, you could do high protein, low carb. You could do high carb, low protein. I mean, there's really such a diverse amount of ways that you can do it. And I don't think that one needs to be a vegan in order to be healthy, but I do think it's a pretty healthy diet. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of evidence that we eat way too much meat, that it's a leading contributor to factors like heart disease and type 2 diabetes and other uh, plagues that are really affecting our society today with these so-called afflictions of affluence, yep. uh, where you know the problem is not that we're malnourished, but that we're overnourished. Hmm. And so there's a lot of uh, evidence that eating a lower meat or even a no meat diet uh, is really beneficial for our health and even for our athletics. I'm often asked about my nutrition. You know, Paul, what's your diet like? And we've talked about it a bunch on the show and my intake of macronutrients, which as a reminder, include saturated fats, your carbohydrates, and your proteins. But today I bring on the expert to discuss all of that and more with a caveat, healthy nutrition, eating vegan, consuming clean meats, and yes, there's an educational component on farm treatment of animals. Our guest today, in addition to being among the world's first clean meat consumers, is Paul Shapiro. Paul's a four-time TEDx speaker and longtime leader in food sustainability. He's published hundreds of articles and publications, ranging from daily newspapers to academic journals, and he's the latest author on Suiting Up Podcast, a best-selling book, Clean Meat, how growing meat without animals will revolutionize dinner and the world. He also grew up playing lacrosse, as a side note, for Landon. Go to Matha. Quickly, clean meat, you ask. It's the next great scientific revolution of creating and commercializing cleaner, safer, sustainable meat that's also real meat without the animals. More on that to come. Seating Up is a show that explores the psychology, playbook of tools, and strategies of the most influential people in sports, entrepreneurship, and entertainment. We also host phenomenal authors. And enjoy my interview with Paul Shapiro. Paul, thanks for coming to our offices in Baltimore. Great to be with you, Paul. Didn't, uh, didn't well, a couple things. I have yet to host another Paul. Ha! Huh, all right. I'm glad, glad to be uh, breaking that glass ceiling <laughs> on Paul's. And then also realize that you, uh, you attended Landon for a few years. Right. Uh, one of our rivals of the high school that I went to was DeMatha. Mm-hmm. Um, and you played lacrosse? I did, yeah. I was never anything to write home about, but I did play lacrosse from third <laughs> to sixth grade, and uh, I had a great time doing it. I, I loved it. If I hadn't switched scores, I probably would have kept on playing, actually. Yeah. I loved it. Um, but I, I wish that I could say that I was like some prodigy who was out there killing it on the field. But I remember <laughs> you know, before like all the training, they would have us run uh, a lap around the field and you know when you're in third grade running around a whole field you know it's actually kind of a big deal and it was so cruel because if you were the last person they would make you run a second lap Mm -hmm. and so my goal was always like don't be the last person don't be the last person yeah you know i it's uh, and this is going to be a very educational uh podcast and conversation will be separate from this but when i hear that i i always think of the more modern notion of the most successful coaches and organizers in sports and business and in sports in particular for, for what seems like a very long time, coaches have always separated the, the best from the last and they focus on you know, your top 10% and your bottom 10%. And oftentimes you're, you're penalized for the bottom 10% or the guy who finished last or the guy who finished last on the lap. And then you're actively celebrating your best players where the best teams, and this is more of a Greg Popovich and uh, Coach K uh, theory, Bill Belichick theory is 
they kind of leave the top 10 and bottom 10% by themselves. They know that every team, professional, college, youth, will have a bottom 10 and will have a top 10. The top 10 are likely going to already adapt your style of coaching and your thought as it relates to the season, competitiveness, work ethic, leadership. You don't really need to work with them too much. Bottom 10%, you always have that on a team. We need to focus on is the 80% try to get them to be more like the top 10% and less like the bottom 10. And when you're spending time with, um, you know, and ridiculing personally the, 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 the athlete who finished last, or in other cases, you have a, a kid who violates team policy and then everyone else is running, you're harping on the negative aspect of team. And, you know, there's a reason why the best coaches have created culture and that's part of it. And that's why they sustain winning versus others. Yeah, man, I'm with you. Uh, I, I remember feeling, so I, I mercifully was never last. I was certainly <laughs> never in the top 10% either, uh, but I was never last. But I always did think it was like the modern equivalent of like the dunce cap, like watching like this poor kid, like running around the field yeah. by himself while the rest of us are doing other things. Yeah. And I always felt bad for him because sadly it was the same dude a lot of the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, right. it was not a, not a pleasant thing to witness. And I'm sure it was even worse to experience. And, and more times than not for you coaches, it's, it's not really functional either. If you're a football, and you have your offensive lineman who's scoring a certain weight based on his position, his ability to block, or in lacrosse, in our case, it was the goalie often who's not running yeah, yeah, during, during, during the game. And so you're penalizing someone um, in a really inversely pr proportionate way. But to the show, we are going to talk about how growing meat without animals will revolutionize dinner and the world. And you are the expert here, so I'm going to do far less talking and more listening uh, but let's start back in, I think, probably the land in time where you decided to become a vegan when you were 13. And it was through your own educational process where you learned that and, and made that commitment. You want to start there? Yeah, sure. Well, first, I, I am glad to say I've written the book on queen meat since I've written literally the only book on queen meat. So <laughs> yeah. That enables me to be an expert. But yeah, so in 1993, I, I did make that choice. And it was primarily out of a desire to help prevent cruelty to animals. I, I didn't really know much about anything other than that I felt badly about how animals were treated. And so I thought, well, if we don't have to eat them, then I would just choose not to. Like, if it was a matter of survival, that's one thing. But I knew that you didn't have to. In fact, one of the things that really led me to do it was I learned that Carl Lewis was vegan. Hmm. And so you and I know who Carl Lewis is. Yeah. But for younger listeners, Carl Lewis back then was like the Usain Bolt or the Michael Phelps of the Olympic era back then. This was like the best athlete in the world. Um, and I loved him. I worshipped Carl Lewis. And so when I read an interview with him and he was like, yeah, being vegan helps me achieve the athletic excellence that I have, I was like, well, first of all, what the hell is this vegan thing? Right. <laughs> I never even heard of it. Yeah. Um, but then I started learning about it. I was like, wow, that is really amazing that he's not only not eating animals, but he attributes his a part of his success to that. And so that led me to uh, just stop eating animals. And uh, it was 24 years ago, and I, I feel great still <laughs> yeah. having done it. Yeah. So do you want to, at, at a high level, start with what the hell is this vegan thing? Yeah, because sure. Because it's... It's, it's interesting. I've listened to your TED Talk, and I've done my own research personally as a perform high-performance athlete, and, and, and I think more so than ever we have uh, paleo, vegan, ketogenic, like all these different types of diets that work for certain people, may not work for others, but it's, there's still a lot of gloss over 
information in the marketplace. So if you were to educate all of our listeners right now on what a vegetarian diet entails, what would that be? Sure. So in the most basic sense, it's just that a vegetarian doesn't eat meat, whereas a vegan doesn't eat animal products, including like milk or eggs. Yeah. Um, so, but there's all types of vegetarian and vegan diets. I mean, you could do high protein, low carb, you could do high carb, low protein. I mean, there's really such a diverse amount of ways that you can do it. And I don't think that one needs to be a vegan in order to be healthy, but I do think it's a pretty healthy diet. Uh, There's a lot of evidence that we eat way too much meat, that it's a leading contributor to factors like heart disease and type 2 diabetes and other uh, plagues that are really affecting our society today with these so-called afflictions of affluence, uh, where, you know, the problem is not that we're malnourished, but that we're overnourished. Hmm. And so there's a lot of uh, evidence that, Eating a lower meat or even a no meat diet uh, is really beneficial for our health and even for our athletics. At the same time, the reason a lot of people do it is because one, they want to prevent cruelty to animals because there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of abuse in the way that animals are raised for food, and two, because they're concerned about the planet because raising animals for food is one of the leading causes of climate change. The United Nations reports, for example, that more greenhouse gas emissions are uh, put out by animal agriculture than by all of our cars and trains and trucks and and planes combined. So it's a huge emitter of of CO2 and methane. It's a huge deforester of uh, rainforest. It's a big polluter of air, water, and soil. And so there's all types of reasons to want to move away from raising animals for food. But what's really exciting now is that we as a species are now developing ways to start divorcing meat production from livestock raising. And that's what this book, Clean Meat, is about, about the ability to actually grow real meat without having to raise whole animals in the process. Hmm. Let's talk about farm-raised animal cruelty. And uh, you're pretty descriptive in, 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 your, in your book and in some of the talks that you've given. And I think that's, that's really impactful. So kind of educate us on, on what actually takes place and we can use hens as, an, as a starting block. Uh, sure. So, I mean, to the extent that people think about where eggs come from, we'll just take that, you know, many people might imagine some bucolic scene where there's chickens pecking around in a barnyard or a real red barn in the background. Uh, unfortunately, little could be further from the truth. Uh, nine out of 10 egg cartons that are sold in the United States, just as for one example, come from birds who are confined in what are known as battery cages. These are cages that are so overcrowded, the birds can't even spread their wings. I mean, they're basically touching each other at all times. Uh, And when you think about that, it's really hard to imagine a more miserable existence. We're not talking about a holding kennel for them. This is where they live their lives for more than a year uh, without even being able to extend their limbs. They never see the sunshine. They never step foot on a blade of grass. Uh, many times, uh, especially chickens who are raised for meat, are pumped full of drugs like antibiotics. And these animals, when it comes time to slaughter them, you know, most people would just rather not hear about it because it's, it's really too difficult even to learn about it. Mm-hmm. And so when you consider that, you start thinking, well, why would we do that to them? Like, what crime did these animals commit to deserve that type of punishment? And you realize the answer, of course, is nothing. That the only crime these animals have committed is the crime of being born into the wrong species. If they had been born as dogs or cats, they wouldn't be treated like this here. Um, and in fact, if, if the factory farms that are producing all these eggs were subjecting dogs or cats to that type of treatment, they would be locked up. The perpetrators would be locked up for criminal animal cruelty. But because the victims are chickens or pigs or, or cattle, 
those animals have virtually no legal protection whatsoever, and so these uh, agribusinesses can do pretty much anything they want to them. And, and the use of antibiotics is primarily, if, if, if uh, my research is right, it's primarily used to uh, keep the hens alive and well given the circumstances of which they're being um, kind of held and encapsulated in these cages and less around or maybe slightly around also um, you know, growing the size of, of the actual meat produced? Yeah, so the reason the meat industry uses antibiotics is really twofold. The first is to increase growth rates for mm-hmm. the animals, and the second is to uh, basically, as a preventive measure, to keep them healthy in what are overcrowded, inhumane, and unsanitary conditions. I mean, chickens who are raised for meat are living in their own feces. They're packed inside <sighs> of warehouses, almost wing to wing a lot of the times, uh, with tens of thousands of other birds. And those are really unhygienic and really stressful conditions. And uh, as we all know, the more stress you have, oftentimes the more compromised your immune system is. And so antibiotics are essentially that type of a crutch. Now, the growth promotion is a bigger thing for them. And 80% of all the antibiotics that are being produced uh, are being fed to farm animals, not to cure disease, but rather just to do the things we were just talking about. Mm. And that's leading to a widespread epidemic of antibiotic resistance. In fact, the American Medical Association urges for an end to the use of what are called non-therapeutic antibiotics Hmm. in, uh, in the meat production. Because we might be approaching a post-antibiotic age. I mean, all of us alive today really only know an era where you have antibiotics and can cure whatever sickness you have. Maybe not any sickness, but many sicknesses with them. But we are approaching a time where the bugs are outperforming our antibiotics. And this race is almost like an arms race where we use the antibiotics and we kill enough of them, but the resistant ones are the ones that are left. They breed, and then you have more and more resistance. And many of our best antibiotics are futile in, 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 uh, when it comes to these so-called superbugs now. And a huge culprit in that, not the only culprit, but a huge culprit, is this reckless use of antibiotics in the meat industry. Hmm. So there's roughly 2% of the population who practice uh, vegetarian consumption. Um, and, and so the use of this podcast is, is going to be very educational. And I suspect that there will be others who are listening that, that may adopt this and, and try it at least and uh, for the right reasons, hopefully. That said, uh, while we're talking about um, the, the consumption of eggs in, in the mass marketplace and the way that um, chicken and hens are raised, and I think about the, the the choice as a consumer in in a food marketplace looking at all of these egg cartons and the multitude of labels on them. And we're starting to see it more carefully curated and marketed. Mm-hmm. Not quite sure where I land there. So if you want to kind of talk us through if we are going to continue our egg consumption, right. what should we be looking at? So if you go to the website egglabels.com, it's a great uh, site to just basically decode what all these mean. Because there's a plethora of these labels out there. There's like a dizzying array, and people yeah. don't know what they mean. It's cage-free, organic-free range, pasture-raised, right. omega-3. Like, I mean, it's like, you really, it, Which, it, means, yeah. right, it means all the same thing to people. I mean, really, nobody knows. And in effect, I mean, here's what you can count on, though. So again, 90% of the eggs are being produced by hens confined in cages. So to the extent that eggs are cage-free, it doesn't mean cruelty-free, but it certainly means better. 
because birds in cage tree environments have a better quality of life. They can walk around, they can lay their eggs in nests. They don't really go outside, but they do have a better quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so then if you start getting higher and higher to like pasture raised, that it means that the birds actually were outdoors rather than just being locked inside of a barn their whole lives. And so these are all improvements. They don't solve every single problem with uh, when it comes to animal welfare, but they are serious improvements. And the name of the game is, is really progress, not perfection. So you don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. At the same time, there's a lot of really awesome egg replacers out there now. So, for example, one company, Hampton Creek, is making a really great mayo that has no eggs in it. It's sold everywhere from Walmart and, and everywhere hmm. else. And so if you want to reduce the number of eggs you're eating just by buying those products, uh, you can definitely do that. And then you have uh, startups like Clara Foods. Clara Foods is a company that is not making plant-based eggs, uh, meaning like making taking plants and making them taste like and feel like eggs but rather they are making actual egg whites without chickens at all yeah they're going from the molecule up real egg whites that do not involve the use of chickens and i write about them in the book clean meat because this is a whole part of this new industry that is producing real animal products not alternatives to meat not alternatives to eggs but real meat real eggs real milk without animals at all. And that process of divorcing meat production from livestock raising, I think is one of the most promising ways to address a lot of the most pressing sustainability concerns that we have now. And and this is highlighted in your book, but growing and brewing meat from animal cells, molecularly, biologically, how does this happen? Yeah, it's really cool. And does it actually have the same benefits and, and you've suggested even better? Right. So uh, let's just say that you're playing lacrosse mm-hmm. and uh, you uh, get hit and you get bruised. Inside, let's say it's on your arm. So inside of your arm, this muscle that just got bruised, you have in your muscle what are called satellite cells. These are cells that just sit there and their only career path is to basically create new muscle. So if you get bruised or let's just say you do a hard workout and you feel sore and you, your, your body will then go to work and start producing new muscle for you. That's what the satellite cells do. They just produce muscle. The same is so in an animal. They have the same types of cells that we do. So a cow, let's say, would have those same satellite cells. And what we can do now is to take a biopsy, a tiny sesame seed-sized sample of their muscle. And in there, there's millions of these satellite cells Hmm. in that tiny little sample. You put those cells in a cultivator or a fermenter and make them think that they're still in the animal's body. And then you feed them just like the animal would eat and they grow and produce muscle just as they would in the animal's body. So what it's producing in this process is real actual meat just grown outside of the animal's body. I know it sounds like science fiction, but indeed it is now science fact. In fact, I've eaten these types of queen meats numerous times now. Beef, duck, fish... Uh, chorizo, uh, liver, uh, yogurt. I mean, there's all these animal products that we can now create without the animals, and there's huge benefits to doing so. One, you've got the benefit of just vastly fewer resources being used to produce the food because you only need the resources to produce the products we want rather than raising the whole animal. But also, it's called clean meat because, like clean energy, it's just cleaner for the planet. In addition, though, it's just literally cleaner. So think about it. Right now, 
if you have raw meat in your kitchen. You're really warned to treat it almost like hazardous waste because you might get sick from it. Right. You've got E. coli, salmonella, campylobacter. These are all intestinal pathogens that can sicken us if we don't cook the crap out of our meat literally. You have to literally cook the crap out of the meat. <laughs> at the same time, though, when you're growing clean meat, you don't need to grow intestines at all. So you don't have those intestinal pathogens. You're just growing the muscle that we actually want. So in addition to being cleaner for the planet, it is just literally cleaner. And that's why so many food safety advocates are really stoked about clean meat as well. If you're anything like me, your workout is one of the most revitalizing parts of your day. And we all know the keys to a great workout. Plenty of water, a healthy diet, hint this podcast, proper form, and one other major thing, the quality of your sleep. One third of Americans aren't getting good sleep. And Molecule Sleep Products are here to change that. Molecule was air-engineered to create the sleekest and coolest mattresses in the world. Their proprietary extreme open cell foam technology works to achieve up to three times the airflow of their nearest competitors, and they also have the coolest bed sheets out there, offering unmatched softness and durability for the ultimate comfort and cooling experience. Now, Molecule helps you bring your A-game, and not just during your active days, but during those deep sleep moments, which are the most critical. As Super Bowl winning quarterback Russell Wilson, Olympic gold medalist Nasia Lunkin, and premier American distance runners Ryan and Sarah Hall, myself included about how they're getting the best sleep of their lives thanks to Molecule. Even renowned neurologists and sleep doctors agree that Molecule sleep products are for anyone striving to maximize their performance. Now, here's for my Suiting Up podcast listeners. You can try Molecule mattresses risk-free for 100 nights and Molecule sheets for 60 nights. If you aren't getting the coolest sleep of your life, they'll take it back, no questions asked. So to get $250 off any of your mattresses or $30 off any of their sheet sets, Go to onmolecule.com forward slash suiting up to begin getting the best sleep of your life. That is onmolecule.com forward slash suiting up. Molecule, optimal sleep for ultimate performance. Many of us have consulted over time as athletes, nutritionists, or you have someone come speak to the team or your company or whatever it is. And they'll give you recommendations in way of vitamins and minerals and, and whey proteins and stuff. But they'll also caveat by say, well, vitamins and minerals should be supplemental. They shouldn't uh, be entirely replacing the real thing. Yeah. And, and that real thing is often alluding to consuming meats directly or your plants directly. And I worry when, when looking at this research, while, while I believe in backed by data, the emotional element is we often see in conversations, there's an emotional attachment and then there's the data driven and which one do you have more confidence in or you end up going down the middle or staying with the path that you've been dependent on. Yeah. Um, is, does that same, first of all, is, that, is the nutritionist right by saying this? And, and second, um, there, there will probably be that uh, emotional argument saying that, well, this feels more stem cell and re re like a replacement. Mm -hmm. Why not just continue to do the real or, or traditional organic source of protein? Right. Uh, so first, I mean, I don't want to pretend to have some like nutritional expertise that I don't have, but I'll tell you my own personal feeling, which is that, yeah, I think that you're much better off, for example, getting calcium by eating broccoli than by taking a calcium supplement. Uh, it seems uh, pretty logical to me. At the same time, this is actual meat. Uh, it is it is not 
a replacement. It's not different from meat. It is actual meat. Yeah. The same animal cells that would grow in the animal's body are growing outside of the animal. So uh, I do think there are ways to improve on it, though, because, you know, meat does have a lot of problems. I mean, it's uh, associated, high rates of meat intake are associated with increased cancer risk, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and so on. And so are there ways that we can make meat even better? And the answer to that is probably yes. So you can envision a time, for example, when we're producing clean meat that has, let's say, less saturated fat and more omega-3 fatty acids. So mm. you could envision, for example, a hamburger that prevents heart attacks rather than causes them. Uh, that's possible, but that's not what the companies are working on right now. What they're working on right now is just creating meat that is the same as meat, except from a food safety perspective is better, and of course is also better for the planet and animals. So prior to this recent development, we'll go back to Carl Lewis. And how was a high-performing Olympic athlete consuming the necessary protein on like kind of the um, like archaic or more quaint <laughs> vegan way. Yeah, that's funny. Um, so, you know, there's this myth that is out there, right? That protein equals meat. And it's just not true. I mean, you know, you look at you know, huge amounts of protein that we get from plants and of course, uh, lots of animals get their protein from plants like elephants and rhinos and gorillas, all of whom are vegans themselves. Uh, but, uh, humans have evolved, uh, to, um, eat both meat and plants uh, and we can do either. You don't have to be one or the other. You can be a very healthy vegan, and you can also add some meat into your diet, and it's not going to kill you either. But you can get everything, including all the protein you need, from plants, whether you're eating nuts, seeds, beans, uh, lentils, uh, or taking plant-based protein supplements, of which there are, are many uh, now, especially, yep. that you can use. And so if you really want protein supplementation, like a lot of high-performing athletes do, just look up plant-based protein, and you're going to get, I mean, you're going to have consumer's fatigue because there's just going to be too many decisions for you to make. Yep, yep. And we'll link to all of those in our show notes, as we always do, um, and we'll, we'll touch up afterwards on, on resources and make sure we get them right. Uh, going to kind of the, the market outlook and looking at meat consumption, a $200 billion industry. Yeah. Um, the plant-based protein is a fraction of, a, of 1% That's in right. that overall industry. How does, uh, from your perspective, spending a lot of time in Silicon Valley and, and looking at it from a business perspective, also organically and research and what you've uh, done for so long, how does that growth occur potentially getting it to one, 2%, then 10% like plant-based um, milk. Yeah. So you're hitting the nail on the head, Paul, in that, you know, a decade ago, plant-based milk was at the same place where plant-based meat is today, meaning virtually nowhere. It was very, very small pr proportion of the market, around 1%. Today, as you noted, it's about 10%. And, you know, anywhere you go from Walmart to Target, huge refrigerated sections of soy milk, rice milk, almond milk, coconut milk. I, I had flax milk the other day. Who yeah. knew? Yeah. And they're awesome. I love them. And, right. and it's not like they're just, you know, a bunch of vegans buying them. I mean, it's just anybody going to Walmart yeah. is buying them because they, mm -hmm. have, they see health benefits and it's cost competitive. So here's how they did it. It's really fascinating. So in the past, it was really soy milk for the most part. And soy milk was, if it even escaped the health food store into a mainstream grocery store, it was put in a section like a health food section of the supermarket, usually non-refrigerated because you don't have to refrigerate it. That's the secret. You know, silk soy milk and all those don't even have to be refrigerated. They put them there because they don't want you to have a different experience. They want you to go to where the milk consumers go because cow's milk has to be refrigerated. But, you know, soy milk before it's open doesn't even have to be refrigerated. So uh, what they did was, first and foremost, 
um, you had a major dairy company buy Silk Soy Milk. And then they had massive distribution that was not available to uh, them prior when they were a small independent natural foods company. With that distribution, they then changed the marketing. And they put it where the cow's milk is sold, in the refrigerated section, in cartons that look just like regular cow's milk. And, you know, of course, they're uh, very upfront about the fact that it's soy milk. But they put it there so that there's no difference in convenience for the consumer. The, the, the factors that really drive most food decisions are three. There's price taste, and convenience. That's what drives nearly all food choices. Now, for a lot of serious athletes, there's other factors that, uh, that are considered, but for most people, price, taste, and convenience are really what's driving their decisions. So when you put a plant-based milk, like a soy milk, in the area where they're already going, and it's price competitive, and it tastes good, that's how you saw that explosion. Plant-based meats, on the other hand, have often been relegated to health food stores, often to the frozen sections, where most protein consumers are not going to the frozen section, they're buying fresh meat, and they have had very little market penetration in the restaurant industry. That is starting to change now because a company called Beyond Meat, which is a fantastic plant-based meat company, I love their stuff, you try out their sausage, their burgers, it's just awesome. Hmm. Um, but they now are marketing their ground beef patties in the meat section of Kroger and other mainstream supermarkets. So when you go to Kroger and, and others and you look in the uh, ground meat section, you'll also see Beyond Meat patties right there. They're not yet cost competitive. They're still, though, only $3 a patty for 20 grams of protein uh, in there. So it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and it's very little saturated fat. There's zero cholesterol. You have no hormones or antibiotics. There's so many benefits to it. So that's how plant-based meat, I think, is going to make that difference. And then clean meat, which isn't yet on the market, but that's a matter of years, not decades away, hmm. I think is going to have to go through the same cycle as well. Yeah. So, so marketing and storytelling is, is always a, a very, plays a significant role in mass adoption for the good. Yeah. Um, we mentioned patties and beef. We, we started by talking about chicken and hens and eggs. Let's talk about quickly the, um, the farm-raised process um, and slaughterhouses and stuff that, that, that exists on um, kind of more of a traditional scale of meat where we get our beef patties and steak. And, sure. and, um, and then also the, the, the running risks that we're seeing more of. There's Netflix documentaries or stuff that we're often ignoring because it's like, so pervasive. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it would be good to, to hear that from you in, in a very clear and succinct way. Yeah, sure. So let's take pigs as an example then. Uh, right mm -hmm. now, there, if you think about mother pigs in our country, the pigs who are used for breeding, to breed all the pigs into existence who are going to be used for pork. These are animals who are smarter than dogs. Uh, they can easily be taught their names, to sit on command, to even play video games. It's amazing. You watch them, and they have a joystick in their mouth while they're watching the monitor, controlling what's happening on the screen, playing video games, and they perform as well as chimpanzees. So, you know, these are extremely intelligent animals, and yet what the pork industry does to them is really abominable. Uh, mother pigs are kept inside of two foot wide crates called gestation crates for their whole lives. Uh, for years on end, they're inside of uh, different types of crates, all of which are too narrow for them even to turn around. So I'm not talking about a, a kennel where they're kept for a couple hours or days. Mm. For years on end, these animals are lined up like parked cars inside of crates that are almost like coffins. They're barely larger than their own bodies. Oh. 
And they languish there and they go insane. They start biting the bars maniacally on their cages. They start bleeding in the mouth because they're biting the bars so much. And eventually, when they realize that they're just never getting out, they give up and they start exhibiting a learned type of learned helplessness and become almost catatonic. And it's really among the cruelest things we do. And think about it again, just like chickens, like what crime did these pigs commit? And we don't take the most heinous criminals in our society, murderers and rapists, and put them in prison cells where they can't even lift their arms or extend their limbs. Yet these pigs, all they did was they were born. They didn't want to be born. We brought them into existence to produce pork for us. And we subject them to tortures that are almost unimaginable. And, I mean, truly, for them, their slaughter is the best day of their lives because it's hmm. the day that their suffering and chronic misery finally comes to an end. So I don't want to be, of course, depressing, but it is important to note just what the reality is because when you think about just how inhumane, unsustainable, and unnatural our current methods of meat production are, all of a sudden plant-based meats and clean meats seem like the naturally preferable option. Under the context of... of geography and legal governance around hunting what is your take on a personal probably take on um i guess more the more traditional way of going out and sourcing meat that's not done at scale on on farms well i certainly think it's preferable to what we do on these factory farms uh, so yeah. um, i don't have a desire to go out and kill animals myself i'm quite happy just not to eat them and have like a live and let live mentality yeah because <laughs> uh, we don't have to yeah um and i do question like the the sport of uh, you know of uh where, where i do question whether there is a sport in killing animals who can't defend themselves against mm -hmm. high-powered rifles for example uh, i don't know that the animals view it as a game like we do uh, however there's no doubt in my mind that that's far preferable to buying meat in the supermarket or from a fast food company because at least those animals uh, weren't enduring agony every day of their lives before they were killed. At least, you know, for them, their death may have been a, a real horror for them, but uh, at least for them, it wasn't a lifetime of misery. Yep. The problem for farm animals is that they are their lives are a curse to them. I mean, they would be better off never having been born. They're brought into existence merely to suffer, and hmm. we cause them almost unmitigated suffering uh, that's behind closed doors. I mean, most people are never going to go to a factory farm. They're not going to go to a slaughter plant. Even if they wanted to, they wouldn't be able to get in. In fact, the meat industry is a, a great purveyor of what are called ag-gag laws. These are these laws that make it a crime not to abuse farm animals, but to take a photo or a video of somebody else abusing them because the meat industry is so desperate to hide what it's doing to animals. So uh, when I think about the lives of farm animals compared to the lives of hunted animals, sure, they're not even comparable. Yeah. We talked a little bit before we hit record. Uh, your, uh, we, talked, we were talking about Rich Roll and his podcast and him being a high-performing athlete, also a vegan, similar to Carl Lewis. And he does great work in the, in the books that he's written. He inspired you to run a marathon. Yeah. And he did so. <laughs> Uh, I would certainly consider having not run one, don't plan on running one in my life, if not, <laughs> since God, I'm not within my wheelhouse, uh, that you potentially had to change your quantity intake Definitely. as a vegan. And so for those that are doing the uh, endurance runs or the Spartan races or the crossfitting or the other high-performance team sport or individual-based uh, sports, I would suspect that hearing a little bit more about that increased quantity intake from you during that period of which you trained for a marathon will be beneficial for a lot of us. 
Yeah, cool. Sure. Well, it was kind of a funny story, actually, in a couple of respects. So first, uh, eight years ago, I used to play a lot of football as an adult and was like a weekend warrior. Uh, not that great of a warrior. Like but American football or traditional football, like soccer? No, 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 not soccer. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Hey, you know, There's not I, that many like, uh, like adult American <laughs> football leagues where you actually suit oh, up for playing. Oh, this was so like... informal, though. This was like, okay. like games with like, you know, very informally organized. Gotcha. Um, uh, but I do think that we ought to change the name of it to handball. I mean, it's very, very rare that a foot touches right. the ball. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's like so crazy that it's called football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like well, probably less than 1% of the game is a foot touch. Touching the ball. Right. Uh, anyway, whatever. Well, that's another episode. Yeah. Uh, but I used to play a lot until I had a career-ending injury, and I used to say career in the loosest sense since it was not a career in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> uh, but I broke my kneecap. I uh, broke it in half, Oof. and uh, Oof. It, it took uh, three surgeries over 12 months to fix it. And uh, there was real question as to whether I would ever run again. And um, I really wondered, like, am hmm. I done with running? And I had only run, like, 5Ks before that. I mean, I really wasn't a, um, I, I wasn't, like, some avid runner or anything. But I did like running, and I did it and, and found it a, a fun sport. Um, and I, was, I did track in high school as well. Um, and so I read Rich Roll's book, uh, Finding Ultra, and it really had a profound impact on me because it's all about overcoming adversity and doing things that you never would have per- perceived yourself as being able to do. As you know better than anybody, uh, oftentimes the blocks for us are in our own mind. As mm-hmm. uh, Michelangelo put it better mm-hmm. than anybody, the problem for most people isn't that they set their marks too high and miss it. It's that they set their mark too low and they hit it. Hmm. And I, I thought... You know, if Rich Roll, who, you know, at age 40 was overweight and alcoholic, couldn't even walk up a flight of stairs in his own home without stopping to catch his breath, became one of the fittest men on the planet. And, I mean, he did, I mean, you should read the book. It's uh, unbelievable what he has accomplished as an athlete. Um, but if he could do it, certainly I could just run a marathon. So my father in the early eighties ran the Marine Corps marathon. So I thought, ah, you know, I'll sign up for the Marine Corps marathon and I'll see if I can beat his time. Um, so I, I started out and I started like just running like 10 K. I was like, Jesus, how does anybody run that long? I mean, I couldn't believe running 10 K. And so then I remember I finished a 10 K and I was so tired. I was eager to collapse. Uh, but there was a photographer at the end and he hmm. was, had the camera trained on me. I was like, I don't want a photo online of me, like on the <laughs> ground, you know, like I was like, I'm about to die of a heart attack and I'm too vain to like, think like, like I can't collapse and have this guy take a photo. Uh, so, uh, thankfully he was there. Um, a great guy, a friend of mine named Jeff Trussell was there. He was the photographer and I, because of him, I remained upright, but I thought to myself, has anybody ever run a single step more than this? So I was like, all right, well, I'll sign up for a 10 miler and then a, half marathon. I ran this half marathon with a friend of mine, uh, Joe Gonzalez, and he beat me by a minute. I was so upset. I couldn't believe it. Uh, yeah. But he beat me by a minute. And when I crossed the line, he was there. And I remember I said to him, and I was more profane than this, so I'm going to clear it up for the airways yeah, here. I, I just said, like, how the hell does anybody run twice this amount? Like, after doing a half marathon, I just couldn't imagine having run twice that. But Rich Roll's book really inspired me, and so I signed up for the Marine Corps Marathon. I wanted to find out, like, what did my dad do? What was his time? And he had always told me, oh, yeah, like, I was around an eight-minute pace. And I was like, huh, that's pretty good. And I was like, yeah, like, what was uh... – he's like, no, you know, a lot of it, though, I was, like, doing, like, a 7.30 or a seven-minute pace for a lot of it. And I'm like, huh, well, do you remember what your actual time was? He's like, oh, I think it was about, like, three and a half hours. And I'm like, well – 
you know, dad, three and a half hours is not the same as a seven or a seven thirty. Like, you know, it's, it's yeah. not the same. Like, you know, there's, there seemed to me at least to be a discrepancy. He's like, Oh, and he, I was always like, what was the exact time? And he always said that he had it, but he never showed it to me. And so I wanted to find out what his exact time was. So I contacted the Marine Corps and like <laughs> pretended to be him and was like, I want to get my, my time. Uh, from like the 1983 marathon, yeah. which you know, of course the records aren't digitized, and I hope I didn't commit some crime by doing this, like, <laughs> like lying to the military about this to get it. But uh, he, uh, the guy, was very helpful when he went and like looked up in the files and found my father's time, and I, I found out what it was. And uh, it was actually he was pretty on the dot. It was just a, just above an eight minute pace average for oh, wow. for the whole thing. So it was like a, it was like a three thirty three okay. full, full, full time. <laughs> I, I thought so, it was gonna go one direction. Or the other. Yeah. So I really thought it was middle. like a fish. Like I felt like every year the time got better and better. Yeah, yeah. Like remember Paul Ryan? Like he misled people about his marathon time. I accused my father of that. I was like, right. yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, but no, that wasn't it. Um, and so I was like, all right, I, I gotta do like basically an eight minute pace to to beat him. So I start out the race and I've got like I'm like you know I can totally do this. And now just to get to your question first, before this, you do have to eat more calories. There's no doubt about it. Like you're expending so many calories because every day, you know, you're out there running one or even two hours a, a day. I mean, yeah. it's just huge caloric intake that you need to, to fix that. What was your specifically on a daily basis? So I was supplementing at the time with, uh, with protein powder, but at the same time, I was also consuming huge amounts of lentils and pumpkin seeds, both mm. of which are really important. So mm. they have uh, zinc protein, iron stuff that, that you really want to get especially if you're not eating meat and so I would uh, make these smoothies and uh, my girlfriend at the time uh, who was fantastic but she was very repulsed by the smoothies that I would make yeah <laughs> uh, I mean I would be like making smoothies that yeah they would have frozen fruit and soy milk in them but then they also had like a can of lentils and like a cup of pumpkin right. seeds like yep. blended in and yeah exactly you know I would say look I'm not doing this for palate preference you know right. it's not like I'm like doing this to uh, for any reason other than trying to uh, not become a skeleton um, and you specifically tracking your caloric intake on a daily basis? Were you getting more than 4,500 calories? Like what a, a, a yeah. accomplishing a, a I marathon? Was, yeah, I was trying to do more than 3,500 3, a day. And um, I did lose about 10 pounds in it. And I, I didn't want to lose weight. I wasn't overweight before. Like I, I really do think I lost like 10 pounds of muscle, to be honest with you. Uh, but after I did the marathon, and I'll, I'll just tell you, the first half of it, oh my God, I was so psyched. Eight minute pace, every mile hitting it. I've just felt I've so good. Before, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the, the problem for me was that I, I just, I ended up getting these cramps and I mean, it was where I had already run 20 miles three times, but really after the 13 mile mark, I, I had some muscle cramping that really mm. impacted me and made me slow down. So my father who was there at the finish line, I think he would have been proud had I beat his time, but I really think he was secretly quite so stoked that I did it. So no, I didn't beat it, but I still did pretty well. I was still happy about it and I still finished it. It wasn't prohibitive for me to, to keep on running. Um, but, uh, after that, I, I stopped doing that long of a distance anymore and the muscle came back uh, pretty quickly actually. And, um, now I never really run more than 5k, 5k or 10k at a time. I did get into like half marathoning and did a lot of half marathons and I was really uh, happy about it because I was able to, every race I did have a, have a faster and faster time. And so every year after year, I would do the same races and I would feel like, damn, man, I'm getting older and faster at the same time. Yeah. Like youth was not wasted on the young in this case. Yeah. Um, but 
uh, now I really am just focused on uh, trying to run like five or, or, or maybe 10 Ks. Although my, uh, my girlfriend, um, Tony Okamoto, who has a, uh, an interest in getting back into running, she herself did a marathon a couple years ago, but she wants to do more. She wants to run together, but we don't run at the same pace. And mm. so I told her if she wants to sign up for a race, what we're going to do is we're going to run it together but I'm going to run it backwards. And oh. so you're going to see like me as this like crazy lunatic running yeah. backwards with this woman. <laughs> but I, I do hope to set some records uh, yeah. with backwards running. I've already gotten up to two miles backwards and it's actually, uh, it's more fun than you would think. You can tell that uh, you're, you're driven both competitively, spiritually, thoughtfully in your work and obviously your, your, uh, your physical activity. I would say that the, the 3,500 calorie range on a daily basis, my guess hearing... Um, like the, the episodic cramps you were having, you, if you were to reflect, you may have upped that to four. I'm sure you're right. But the but what I have heard, and neither of us are dietitians or nutritionists, but I've consulted and had done the blood work, and um, shout out to Dr. Tom and and um, and Joe DeFranco who set me up uh, with with MRT blood sensitivity testing and such. Um, is it feels like a lot of um, high performance athletes now obviously depending on size and, and your workout regimen in competition during the off season is is typically shooting for around 3000 calories and then going upwards of 4500 and 5000 and uh, you know if you're the Michael Phelps of the world that's it's like 10 yeah that's training for the olympics and in the pool nonstop it's 10 during those high yeah. training moments so there there's obviously a big range but um, something to consider getting a, a good grasp or feel for if, if you're an athlete looking to continue to improve in high school, college, professionally, or even uh, playing clubs. So, Yeah, man, I'm, I hear you on that. I, one, I think that you're right. And two, I think another error that I made, which is so stupid when I think about it in hindsight, I had this mentality that oh, you know, you don't need like electrolyte supplementation during this because you can just eat like dates and other dried fruits that have the electrolytes in them. And I was like, it was like that theory that you're better off eating food than nutrients. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a grave mistake. Uh, I think there's a reason why you want electrolyte supplementation when you're doing something like that distance where you're running for hours on end. Um, it, it's not the most natural thing for humans to do to just run and run for hours on end. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's is be a, a wise idea to do that and i think that could have helped me as well yeah electrolyte supplements are greatly important and i would add to the element of competition whether it's a marathon or a lacrosse game or a football game or a soccer match or a tennis match or swimming race is that there is anxiety and there's yeah. build up in adrenaline yeah. and that's a big energy suck as well that often can't be accounted for outside of like real sports psychology training and stuff, but that's a big expenditure that yeah, takes place dude. often pre-event. I, I wish that I could say like, oh no, it's mind over matter, but no, I mean, of course. It's just you're like, excitement. You're so scared. You're like, it's you have really the exciting. adrenaline, you've got, you're so psyched, you got your friends or family are there and they're going to be watching you and meeting you. I mean, it's like everything, all these people around cheering you on yeah. and it's just, you know, it's an, it's an experience that is so different. I'm sure you experience it when people are like, you know, chanting your name when you're out there on the field and <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just a very different experience from what your body is accustomed to. Well, Paul, uh, your book, clean meat, it's linked in our, uh, suiting up podcast show notes. It's wonderful to have you here packed with information inside of these 45 minutes. And, uh, I really appreciate it. I hope our listeners, um, gained a lot of knowledge, as did I, and are uh, critically thinking about their nutritional intake moving forward. Very cool, Paul. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed Paul and my conversation, please be sure to let us know. His book and bio are located at cleanmeat.com. 
We also cite egglabels.com to decode your food shopping strategy for deciphering between free-range, pasture-raised, cage-free eggs, etc. Follow and mention us on social media. My Twitter handle is at Paul Rabel. His is at Paul H. Shapiro. Be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with two other authors, Sam Walker and Scott Galloway. Both were exceptional, educational, insightful, engaging, thoughtful guests. Those and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, when you find us, please hit subscribe. Much gratitude for doing so. Check out this episode's show notes at suitinguppodcast.com. Thank you to our show sponsor today, Molecule. And as always, everyone, have a great and clean week. <laughs>